Welcome to podcast number 48 of My Favorite Detective Stories. Today's date is April 30th, 2019, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest this week is Bruce Pitt-Payne. Bruce honed his skills as a major crime investigator and interview specialist for over 26 years in a career with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. He was a full-time team leader on the E-Division interview team, as well as a part-time member of the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team's Special Projects Unit. He's a subject matter expert on investigative technique, including interviewing adults, both witnesses and suspects, as well as children. For several years, he was the project manager of investigative interviewing training for the RCMP in British Columbia, where he was instrumental in the creation and implementation of the RCMP phased interview model, which is the PEACE model after evolutionary adaption to Canadian legal and ethical standards. He has taught witness and suspect interviewing skills on both a national and international scale. It is my pleasure to introduce my friend, Bruce Pitt Payne. My Favorite Detective Stories podcast features past or present detectives and investigative journalists. As a working investigator of over 42 years, I hope to inform, inspire, and entertain you with great stories. We want to learn from our guests how they got started in the field and why they decided to become investigators in the first place. Listen as they tell us about the early years and who were their mentors and why those mentors had such a huge impact on their careers. We will explore what makes for a good investigator and what makes for good investigation. But most importantly, after you get to know our guests, we will ask them for their favorite detective story, or maybe two. Stay tuned. The interview is about to begin. Hi, Bruce. Welcome to the show. Hi, John. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing fantastic. And how are things out there in the greater Vancouver, British Columbia area today? Well, I'm looking out over my balcony right now at our back window, and it is gloomy and cloudy, and I'm guessing around uh, 15 degrees, 14 degrees Celsius, which I think would be close to 60 degrees down in your part of the world. That's true. Here today in uh, Connecticut, southern New England, it's a bright, sunny day, getting ready for the holiday weekend here in the States, and... uh, I'm uh, thoroughly enjoying it. So as uh, as we record this, it's uh, April 19th, 2019. But as my listeners always want to know about my guests, how did you get started in this business? Well, I got started, John, in uh, in 1991 when I uh, was sworn in as a regular uh, member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Um, I got sworn in actually out uh, in my hometown here, Maple Ridge in British Columbia, which is far out on the West Coast by Vancouver. Um, and back then, um, well, even now, everybody trains for six months in uh, Depot Division, which is in Regina, Saskatchewan, which is a little bit, it's close to the center of the country, right out in the Prairie region. Uh, so I got introduced to uh, the extreme weather out there on the winter side, which was 30 and 40 below uh, while we went through our training. Uh, did my six months there and then got my first posting, which was in another prairie province called Alberta in a very small place where there were only 10 members. And that was called Brooks uh, in Alberta. Um, and from there, I went really far north up to a place called Fort McMurray, uh, did a couple of years there and then uh, weaseled my way back to the lower mainland of British Columbia to a place called Coquitlam. Uh, where I started doing uh, my major crime work and then continued doing major crime work through uh, other detachments and finally ending up in our headquarters uh, on an interview assistance unit. So uh, the Royal 
Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP. Uh, that's uh, How is that different in terms – how would you explain it as being different from the way policing is done here in the United States? Well, I think the policing is very similar. I think that's universal. Um, the uh, I guess some of the differences would be found more in jurisdictional aspects. Uh, so the RCMP is the federal police force in Canada. Um, but you might think if you use that, um, I guess the equivalent in the U.S., it would be the FBI. Having said that, the RCMP doesn't just do the federal work in a non-uniform capacity. They are also contracted out uh, both provincially. So each province, and we have 10 of them, uh, and some territories could actually pay to have a provincial force done by the RCMP in uniform. Um, or even municipalities within certain provinces can pay uh, to have them work under contract as well. So I, I think there's only a couple of provinces, uh, Ontario and Quebec, where there isn't uniform work done. Uh, but it's the full gamut, even though we're a federal force. Hmm. So federal, but with uniform policing powers. Uh, so it's I would look at it as almost like the hybrid of what our FBI is, but yet uh, having what the components of what our state police do around the, the, the country. Uh, I think that's a, a really good analogy is uh, if you have this, if you didn't have the FBI, uh, but you had, say, uh, your state police and a component of that state police did federal work as well, you would have really what the Mounties do. Okay. So, and as such, you know, you are the, I guess, alpha dog of, of the law enforcement community in uh, Canada. What are the other law enforcement communities? Just to give me a little bit of a background so I understand it a little bit better. Yeah, and, I, and, and it's kind of funny. I wouldn't even use the term alpha dog because uh, I I've, I've have two brothers uh, that are do municipal police work, one in Vancouver and one that just retired from out in Hamilton. Um, and uh, from working with them and their their colleagues, uh, frankly, a cop is a cop is a cop, uh, okay. and it's the individual police officer that makes the outfit, not the other way around. So I, I'm very um, always apprehensive of trying to make it look like the Mounties or, or something special. I'm proud of them, but uh, I got to say kudos to all of the other police forces because we all do the same job and we all have the same frustrations. Okay. No, I appreciate yeah. that. And, and I just wanted to kind of get an idea of what the different uh, policing organizations were in Canada as opposed to the, to what we're used to in the United States. Uh, you know, I have a chance to talk to a Mountie, so I'm going to ask questions. <laughs> so, <laughs> right on. Yeah. So uh, somewhere during this time period, um, you had mentors. You had people that were teaching you how to be a better Mountie. So can you talk I about sure that did. a little bit? Yeah, I sure did. And I was extremely blessed. Um it, in the RCMP, the way we work is you do your six months recruit training in uh, Regina. Uh, but as, as anybody who's done police work knows that it, it prepares you for very little of the real world. So the real work starts once you get out in the field after that. And we are assigned for six months what we call a recruit field trainer. I believe they call them uh, cadet coaches now. Um, and that person sticks with you and guides you. And if you're lucky to get somebody that is is uh, investigatively minded, uh, as opposed to, and this isn't to slag the others, but more community policing or school liaison or whatnot. Um, if you get somebody that is investigatively minded, like I got, uh, there was a very solid, diligent, just super fair person. 
um, then you, you stand to learn a lot. And I was lucky to have a fellow, his name was Craig McIntyre, still is Craig McIntyre. And he was uh, an exceptional trainer and, and really allowed me to grow and, and allowed me to make mistakes without feeling like an idiot so I could get better. Um, in my first posting, I also lucked out that I had a, a sergeant named uh, Ed Sikondiak. And Ed would allow me to come out on calls that normally I wouldn't get a chance to do as a rookie um, and to get my feet wet and to think and to learn uh, with some really good guidance. So I was very lucky at the beginning. And frankly, I think that uh, was a big part of why I wanted to become a, an investigator in the major crime world afterwards. Yeah, it sounds, um, it sounds like the, the mentoring uh, uh, combined with your enthusiasm, allowed you th those seeds to be watered, and you were able to sprout into the investigator that you started to become. Absolutely, absolutely, and and to be taught that that it's not just science and it's not just art; it's a mixture of both, and you better be creative. That's what I learned from these two fellows, and and it really stuck with me throughout my career. You know, and, and to, to your point, you know, I recall my, my time in uniform way back when. And, and Bruce, I got to tell you, uh, uh, I was a police officer so long ago, we carried six shooters. So just so you know. But, so uh, did I. Okay. Um, we, you know, somewhere along the line, we traded the horses in for cars. But uh, anyhow, no, the, re the reason I, I, I say that was back then, uh, there were, I wouldn't call them field training officers for me, but I would say like senior patrol officers or persons in a, a more supervisory authority, lead, lead, uh, patrol officers at the time. And, and, and some were, some brought an attitude of investigation and wanting to know what's going on. Others mm -hmm. just simply, uh, responded to calls, uh, made sure their paperwork was clean, um, yeah. just covered what they needed to do and then moved on to the next thing. And, uh, well, there were some other people that just said, John, don't bother me for the next eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, I remember I said a cop is a cop is a cop. doesn't matter what outfit or when. Right. Uh, things have stayed the same. I think we both have the similar experiences. And I think that you will always have those different personalities like you're explaining. The true leaders, though, you don't have to have a certain rank to be a leader. And this is what I've learned. Uh, you, a leader helps other people to develop to the point where sometimes they're better than that that person themselves, and and that's where I was very very lucky. I had true leaders that uh, all through my career have been there if I searched them out. Um, but when I started, they knew that we would be timid as new people, and they actually searched us out, which was very nice. And and to your point, Bruce, you know, you go to a a, a scene or a situation. And the, like the fellows whose names you mentioned, they would go about that, that situation, that investigation. And I would use the word investigation. Mm -hmm. They would go about that situation with an investigative mindset. Yes. And you would, and you would see it. Then you would might be teamed up with somebody else and they would go about it differently. And you'd be saying to yourself, but, 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 you know, what about this? What about this? What about this? And there was a lack or a wanting there. Mm -hmm. And you didn't want to step on toes because you thought, well, maybe that's the guy's style or maybe it's the way that, it, eventually this thing's going to be found out. But at the end, you realize 
realized that, well, no, they, they just didn't do it the way uh, your mentors did it. And there was a lack or a want for the investigative uh, opportunity that was there during that situation. Is that is that fair to say? Oh, I think that's bang on. And, and what I learned to do is uh, eventually, it took a while, is not get frustrated or mad at these people that did it differently or, or really didn't want to excel even at the investigative part. Uh, I learned to appreciate that it doesn't mean I have to be that way. And I also don't have to be combative with them or put them down. It actually allowed me to realize, uh, well, let's put it this way. It gave, me, it gave me direction on what I shouldn't be doing or what I don't want to be as a police officer. So it, those people, th- I, I thank them, actually, because uh, they taught me a lesson as well. They were, yeah, it's called character. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and perseverance. And uh, how to uh, overcome uh, adversity, maybe sometimes within your own organization, you know, and uh, to that point, I I appreciate that. So uh, you you moved along in your conversation to now where you're in, uh, you're in investigations. Can we talk about that a little bit now? Absolutely. Floor is yours, sir. (laughs) (laughs) What particular part? What do you? Well, uh... you, 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 you took a, you were able to uh, get a promotion into a major crime squad. Yes. Okay. So Um, tell me about that work and and how that progressed. Well, it, and now it's kind of funny is that uh, this might be one difference too, between um, the American police and Canadian is we don't necessarily, if we go into a, another section such as major crime, get promoted. Oh. And that's something, that, you know, for instance, the RCMP, we don't call ourselves detectives. Uh, we start off as constable and the next rank is corporal and then sergeant. Uh, but as a constable, you could end up doing some very high level major crime work not actually have a promotion in rank, but have way more responsibility. Uh, but it's the rank that sets the pay scale and, and some of the, uh, I guess, the way things are, are followed or, or the, uh, the structure. So um, I my first sort of, I guess, investigative promotion was in Coquitlam, where uh, we walked in, or I walked in right at the time uh, that a huge serial killer investigation was starting, um, and it was happening under our nose in Port Coquitlam. I don't know if you've heard of it, but a fellow named Willie Picton, uh, the pig farmer who ended up killing many, many, many poor uh, sex trade workers in the area. Mm. Um, so it was it was huge. Again, I'm not going to try and pretend that I was involved at a large end. I was still fair junior at that time, but I sure learned a lot uh, from watching people um, go about things and uh, eventually played a bigger part later on. Now, this was at a time when uh, Law and Order and CSI and all the media weren't really concentrating on serial murderers. It wasn't as known as, as much out there in the world as as maybe law enforcement knew about it. So it was kind of new to everybody, I would think, wasn't it? Well, it, it was. And and I can't speak, and I would never speak for the team of professionals. They did such a bang-up job at the end of the day. And not perfect, but um, an investigation never is. The problem is that that people do watch shows like CSI and they can never understand why the police can't get uh, enough information or grounds uh, out of thin air to go on and search a property when it seems like it should have been so easy. So um, I'll tell you, this it's an important point. It sort of has triggered some thoughts here on this, John. The thing that I learned the most and that I preach this now from, from this whole file was 
Uh, for years, the RCMP could not get onto his property because they didn't have enough to get a warrant regarding the missing women. Um, but they eventually got on uh, to find uh, some illegal firearms and from there inadvertently stumbled upon enough information then to get warrants for the missing women case. And the point that I make now, and it is, it, it just backs up the whole idea of modern investigative interviewing is it didn't matter how, uh, I guess, experienced the investigators were. It was a very junior, brand new RCMP member that got us onto that farm. And he did it by being a really nice person. It was an unrelated case, a domestic violence case that he was involved in. And when he was driving the suspect back, he actually stopped at a store and got some cigarettes for this guy because he was a smoker and he just didn't want him to suffer for the whole weekend in cells. And this fellow told him about the uh, firearms that were on the property. And that is what actually solved the whole case. So it was a very junior member who had the right attitude of building rapport and using empathy that got us on there. Not all the fancy fandangled police work and uh, and DNA and everything else that you would have thought would have got us on. So it, that story has really stuck with me. Mm, that's a good little you know vignette to talk about. I appreciate that. And to your point is that it it wasn't the badge heavy copper that uh, you know would treat uh, the suspect like dog poop yeah. and uh, and have the the suspect uh, uh, clam up or shut down. No, instead, it was a guy that went out of his way to get him a pack of cigarettes. And then it, it that, that became a conversation point and it went further to where the rest of the story happened, as you as you just laid it out for me. That's that's really a good one. Exactly. Yeah. Now, in your work, what other type of cases did you work on as, as you were uh, growing in your career? Well, as I started, uh, as the years went by, I eventually got transferred to a town called Maple Ridge. And, and there I, I I ran a very small major crime unit, um, uh, plainclothes unit, and we were really bogged down. There were murders that were hitting us quite a lot at that time. So that was our main focus. But other than that, there was uh, sexual crimes. There were robberies. Um, and I think any police officers will tell you, you've never got enough manpower to deal with these. Mm -hmm. uh, so frustrating. Um, but it was also at this time that I was becoming very proficient at investigative interviewing because uh, that is what I chose to be my specialty. I, I found I was good at it. I really enjoyed doing it. I saw the benefit to every investigation, whether you're interviewing a witness or a suspect. And I eventually got noticed. I was very blessed to be asked to go to a uh, to the full time interview team over at our headquarters in Surrey, uh, where we dealt with predominantly all of the major files that required interviewing. And I'll use the term back then, it was called interrogation as well, which I don't use now. I, I have had a bit of a change of heart on how we do things. As we're going to talk about a little bit later on, in my earliest days as an investigator, I also found that I gravitated towards investigative interviewing as well. And yep. the things that you talked about, establishing rapport and uh, using empathy and open-ended mm -hmm. open-ended questions and, and that type of thing. And uh, and as time went by, I found myself, any time I could find an investigative interviewing course that I could attend, I would do it. Now, sometimes it was on the company dime and other times it was mm -hmm. on my dime. But to me, it was that important. I felt that more so than any other skill set, investigative interviewing was probably the most important one for an investigator. 
And, but, uh, and I mean, John, that's why you and I ended up getting together and, and Jonathan Davison with uh, Forensic Interview Solutions yep. um, is because you do have the same mindset as us, which is uh, an investigation must be tied together with proper interviewing. Um, and I remember a conversation we had where uh, the sexy part is the suspect interviewing, but we all agreed that more, more investigations are, are foiled by poor witness interviewing than anything else. Uh, so it's not even the sexy part. It's just getting information that's accurate, that is complete. And that's why that's how we cross paths, because we have the same goals. That's true. And we'll get to that. And, and I'm glad that you gave that as a little preview. So you're now training others in Surrey. What were you training them in and how was it uh, and, and how were you received in your training initiatives? Well, it, originally, I, I took a, a full-time position at our training academy. It's for after the uh, recruit training. It's called Pacific Region Training Center, which is in Chilliwack, which is about another hour into the valley from Vancouver. And I did my last five years there as the head or program manager of investigative interview training. It had its administrative areas where it was setting up courses and getting instructors and such to come out uh, designing courses, uh, so establishing proper curriculum design. So I got to work with some very, very skilled people in that area and learned a lot myself for uh, for what I would carry on to after I retired. During that period, I was blessed again to be part of a group uh, that designed the new RCMP phased interview. And it was two components, one for witnesses and then one for suspects. And that was a huge change uh, for Canadian policing in that it, for the first time, really incorporated the peace model from the United Kingdom, along with some homegrown, I have to throw in uh, models as well, such as Stepwise that Dr. Yule and his group, the Forensic Alliance, had come up with. But, you know, it ran the full gamut uh, involving motivational interviewing, strategic use of evidence. Uh, we got a chance to look at everything that was good that was out there and everything that was bad and say, here's now what we want as our legacy. Uh, and it, it's a very good approach uh, right now because it is at least based on the very good work that was done in the United Kingdom. So, and to your point, you and I both understand what the peace model is. Yes. Uh, and I'm not going to put you on the spot to say what each of the letters in the ac acronym of peace means. Yeah. But let us suffice to say, and I'll, I'll maybe I can capsulize this, and you tell me how 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 close I am. Awesome. And th and then you can also tell me how it got further adapted in Canada. Beautiful. As I understand it, in the UK, there was a time when police departments and the Home Office there were rocked with re revelations that some of the interviewing techniques that resulted in interrogations uh, were co coerced confessions, and later on found people in very high-profile cases to be actually innocent of the, the crimes that they were charged with. And also, it, it caused that those high-profile cases were more difficult to solve because of the tunnel vision that had been done during the uh, interviewing and investigative process. So, as I understand it, UK then took a best practices approach and grabbed the best ways to go about interviewing and put this into a model that they then sort of caught, not sort of, they actually codified and trained to their people. And, and, the, and the basis of it is cognitive interviewing, uh, which is uh, an American creation. Fisher and Geiselman uh, talked about how to help people with their memory, how to phrase questions how to uh, sequence them, how to establish rapport, 
all the necessary things, borrowing a lot from sociology and then incorporating that into actual field interviewing techniques. Now, did I miss anything there or did I leave anything out? Just help well, me. Well, I, I think you're bang on is, is, yeah, there were the miscarriages of justice that happened. And a lot of it was because there was no formal training aid. Uh, I always want to emphasize this when I'm teaching is none of these officers or anybody that's got a false confession, rarely do they get up in the morning and say, gee, I want to ruin somebody's life or or conduct a, a corrupted investigation. It's through lack of training. I started off there. You started off there where we would have made the same mistakes. But it, you use the term, I think, tunnel vision in there, I believe. And yes. that was one of the things is it wasn't just interviewing. It was understanding the pitfalls within major case management. And tunnel vision is huge. It's happened to me on just about every major file. Uh, and any investigator worth their salt or that's honest will say it's happened to them. So it's part of it is being trained to be aware of all of the fallibilities as a human being while you're doing the investigation and then to build in uh, some hard skills that are taught with the emphasis on the soft skills, if that makes some sense. So England or the UK, I don't want to just say England, right. um, really took the best practices from across the world. And you're you're right. It started with the uh, with the acceptance of the cognitive interview from Geiselman and Fisher. But then it branched also out uh, because that was great for witnesses and victims or for mm -hmm. a suspect that wanted to talk to you. Right. But obviously, the agenda might be a little bit different for, for many suspects in that they don't want the police officer to find the truth. Right. So they will they will provide different agendas that will uh, interfere with that goal of the officer. So uh, people like Eric Shepard came up with uh, ideas such as conversation management. Mm -hmm. And that's where it started to branch off into something very interesting, uh, because it allowed people to understand how to talk to somebody how to realize that just because somebody else's agenda might start off different than yours, it doesn't mean that they don't want to talk to you. They will just provide it differently. So uh, the emphasis has really shifted for suspects, particularly to how do you allow somebody or, I guess, encourage them, motivate them to keep talking, even though it might not be in their best interest. And part of that conversation management is allowing them to lie to you. So as long as they're giving information, not the old way, which was to get a confession, that was the goal. It's now to get information. With that information, you are able then to, to build something from it in the investigation. And I equate it to what they did was they said, we will teach you as potters how to get the clay that you need to make that bowl. And if you don't get that clay, you're not going to get that bowl. Something will be wrong with it. Oh, so that's really what, what happened. And uh, in the same breath or at the same time, um, it wasn't just in England, in Canada. I know that before we even started looking at peace, in fact, at a time that we were openly hostile uh, to listening to people tell us that, that they knew it all and we didn't know anything. That's how we perceived it. We could be classified as a bit arrogant mm -hmm. or defensive. Um, before we even started really looking at peace and conversation management, we were all doing uh, something very similar already out here. 
So that's where it morphed into something that might not be as recognizable in the UK because we've done it a little bit different. Here, here's an example I like to give. Uh, are you? I took. It's funny that you mentioned sociology. I, I took a, I believe it was an anthropology class, and it, it was dealing with different monkeys. And I didn't know that you know monkeys came from the same creature, but they actually split up into New World and Old World monkeys, meaning that they started off in Africa and somehow some of these little critters ended up in South America. Yeah, it doesn't matter how they got there, whether they swam or whatnot. But what is important is the evolution changed. So you ended up with some of them that had tails and, and the original ones didn't end up having tails. And that is what I see with investigative interviewing is it all started off, at least the, the way we look at it now, out of the University of Florida with Geiselman and Fisher. And you know, one sort of idea went to the UK where they developed it their way, and another went to Canada where we ran with it and developed it another way. We've ended up with something that is very, very similar, but I'll be honest, I've stolen some great teaching methods from the UK. That's what has made the big differences. I think they've done an exceptional job explaining to people how this should work and keeping them unbiased and convincing them of the scientific background to the technique. So it's not necessarily the technique that that uh, we we took from England, but I, I, I think we're all honest that we sure learned a lot about what made it tick and why it was effective so that we could convince people that or motivate people to use it. So I don't know if that made sense at all, but uh, it's just a little sort of an idea that I like to convey to get it across. Well, and to your point, I just have a question, and that is interviewing or interrogation uh, activity in the United States uh, changed dramatically with uh, Miranda versus Arizona and the Miranda rule or the Miranda rights, as we know it, beating or uh, coerce, uh, very physical coercive techniques were banned from policing and that the uh, Miranda rights given to a suspect allowed them to remain silent if they chose to. And if those rights weren't somehow offered to the suspect, any confessions thereafter would probably, and I'm not a lawyer, fall under uh, fruits of the poisonous tree mm -hmm. and they would be uh, disallowed. So police departments had to scramble for a non-physical confrontation method of extracting information from individuals. Now, unfortunately, it didn't include ethical. So there were uh, methods that were then later created where it was okay for the police to lie, for the police to uh, act in, in ways that, uh, well, you, you certainly wouldn't want your, your mother or your grandmother interrogated that way for sure, but came as a response to the federal Supreme Court rulings of Miranda in the 60s. Similarly, many of the techniques or, or the wide-ranging techniques that were illegal or unethical in the UK were uh, then prohibited by, I believe, statute there as well. And essentially that the police, if they were found to be using those techniques, it would void, it would void the, uh, information given or the confession given. So they, they had to, the police had to come up with a way to an interview in an ethical manner that met the uh, designs uh, and protections by their home office. Do I understand that right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And then did that same thing happen in Canada? Was it that can Canadian Parliament then said, okay, police, you have to change the way you do your interviews now. Otherwise, some of your uh, the evidence that you get from your inter your previous interviewing techniques will be uh, deemed inadmissible in court. Was that the case there? Yeah, ours ours happened uh, quite a lot differently. Is that we looked at the UK and said that they got spanked. Uh, there's no other word for it. 
uh, because of the miscarriages of justice, they, as Canadian police officers, we looked and we said, okay, we can understand that something had to be done. But we also, many of us thought that the baby was thrown out with the bathwater in that it was, okay, let's completely start over again and prohibit everything that seemed like the American technique at the time, uh, anything that was accusatory. So in Canada, we didn't want to be legislated. We see it as quite often many police officers see it as if you're legislated, it leads to black and white thinking and dealing with human beings should never be treated in that. It should be more in a circumstantial or context dependent way of thinking. So we didn't want it so that a judge, if legislated that a certain technique or or certain routine was now not allowed, that it would mean that a statement would be excluded, even though it had no effect on the particular person who was being interviewed. So what I'm getting at is every human being is different, and there will be a different effect on the voluntariness of that interview, which is the important point in Canada. By Canadian law, the prosecutor must prove that any suspect statement was given voluntarily, and that's to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a huge burden. And we have seen it through our case law, Supreme Court case law, work in favor of everybody where each single interview is evaluated on its own merit. So what I'm getting at is you could do a minor lie with somebody, not about evidence particularly, but you could you could use some sort of trickery on one person and it wouldn't deprive them of their ability to say, I don't want to talk. Yet, if somebody was in a more vulnerable group or less sophisticated, it might have a huge impact on their decision whether they're going to talk, therefore affecting the voluntariness. And what we in Canada believe, or many police officers, is that that works very well. Uh, it works to the point where the, the courts have said that really it, it'll be the norm, not the exception now, that all suspect interviews in criminal cases must be video recorded from beginning to end. So a judge can look at all of the things that could deprive somebody of the voluntariness that otherwise we would never have been able to present. So it's a very fair system, arguably. And we didn't want to lose that for a black and white system because some judges were starting to get very upset and justifiably that people were too confession oriented. So all it took was somebody to go out there and all he wanted was a confession, which made them step over every legal and ethical boundary. And these were ending up in court. And we were hearing through the cases that some of the judges were getting very upset. So we decided to take a proactive stance. In Canada, many people don't know this. You can still interrogate. You can still interrogate in an accusatory manner as long as it doesn't take away that individual. That individual is the important point, their ability to choose whether to talk. So we're still allowed to do it. So it was actually something different. The police decided. I can at least speak for the RCMP, and I know some other major police forces have followed it suit or done it themselves. It's the police that decided, if we don't want to be legislated, we better take a proactive stance here. We better be the ones that look at the best practices worldwide and actually tone it down and show that we have some ethical on top of legal boundaries so we don't get told that you're going to get your toys taken away. So that's how it worked in Canada. And so far, my understanding is it's working very, very well that uh, that ethically uh, we're sticking to our guns. And the most egregious uh, situations are still being brought before the courts. So it's case law. 
and you're getting further guidance or the Canadian uh, police are getting further guidance as to uh, wh- where that line is and why it's black and white. So, yes. uh, but it's, but it's not uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater. So uh, do I, do I understand that correctly? So I missed the very last line you were saying that. I said, it, uh, we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater uh, to co- completely overhaul the interviewing system there. It's still, uh, you're still getting guidance from the courts as to, you know, why some behavior is egregious and therefore that statement won't be admitted. And it, and it helps all the police officers understand, well, you don't cross that line. That's where exactly. you don't go. Exactly. So it's it's the training, but also having groups such as our interview teams that can monitor what's happening in their jurisdiction, uh, their province or their division and say, okay, listen, we're noticing a trend. We better fix this before it becomes something that that is legislated. I'm going to give you an example here is, and it doesn't matter how much training you have, if somebody has a goal to get a confession and, and for whatever reason, that's all they see and they have that tunnel vision and they have the confirmation bias that is is built in and the tunnel vision that they can't get away from, they're going to do things such as what I read about not too long ago. Uh, a murder interview was, was thrown out on a suspect because they wouldn't let him go to the bathroom until he talked. And you have to shake your head and go, that's never been taught. Even if you're looking at the the infamous Jay Reed model from down in the U.S., they've never taught anybody to do that. So the most dangerous thing is is the interviewer that that cannot get away from this confession driven. I must get a confession at all cost approach. I must win at all costs. That in the hands of poor training and poor monitoring after the training is what gets us in trouble. So to to get back to the point there of how our courts are looking at it, the courts would look and say, this is really, really bad. I, I hope that this isn't what's being trained, but this interview will fall. It doesn't mean that every other one. That's right. And it doesn't mean that they're saying that that uh, it applies to every situation as well. So it, uh, we're really happy with that. And uh, as long as people don't keep playing around with voluntariness and actually just keep trying to get a, a confession at all costs, I think we'll be pretty safe and we won't have this legislation as happened in the United Kingdom. So uh, and now bringing us to America, you have mm-hmm. a situation throughout the United States where more and more wrongful convictions are being overturned. And and many of these wrongful convictions were being overturned because of DNA findings. Yeah. But while those DNA findings show that the true perpetrator was someone else, why was the person that was arrested and wrongfully convicted, why were they in jail? And many a times what they're finding out was because of coerced or false confessions. And throughout that constant growth of uh, and publication of this uh, raft of wrongful convictions based upon coerced and false confessions, it, it began to, to show a much uh, more of a light on the interrogation techniques that were being utilized. But not only that, in the absence of uh, other uh, fact-finding interview techniques, that some of the techniques, uh, the coercive in, uh, interrogation and tunnel-visioned type of techniques tended to wind their way into governmental or uh, corporate investigations, and it left a real wanting for methods that would allow police and corporate and non-governmental investigators to be able to conduct investigations where they could gather more facts, get more evidence, and do so in a non-accusatory way, in a non-coercive way, and in an ethical way. And 
to that end, as I saw it, the next step or what should have been the next step or is going to be the next step is some sort of adoption of peace here in America from the UK. And we had the benefit or the fortune of working with, as you said, Jonathan Davison of Forensic Interview Solutions uh, in wanting to bring peace to America. So this is something that now is 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 going to be uh, coming to America in terms of adapting uh, the peace model, both uh, non-governmentally, corporately, and and also with law enforcement community about the, t- the better way of gathering facts a- in a non-accusatory and uh, in an ethical manner. So um, can you just tell me a little bit how uh, we intersected on this, as you understand it, uh, through Jonathan? So I'd appreciate you hearing from your side. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we ended up getting on board with Jonathan because, uh, I mean, I can speak for myself here because uh, I saw it was such a good thing. Um, now, I've never been a, a peace evangelist as such, and there's always the danger when you go to another country that you don't want to be seen as that foreigner that's coming over and saying, you must follow what we're doing because we're all interview gods. Uh, I know in Canada, we took a little bit of offense to that when we were told that from many people in the UK that, that we don't know what we're doing because we're North American um, and they developed the peace model. So when we came together, it was to go down and have it there on an open platter to be given, to be explained and to have people choose to do if if they wanted. I know that's my approach. Uh, I know that's Jonathan's approach. And I know from the conversations that you and I have had, it's the same thing. Well, And to your point, I had been self-taught in cognitive interviewing and was mm-hmm. very, very effective utilizing cognitive interviewing in my work as a private investigator and in my work as an insurance fraud investigator. Yep. And when I saw that Jonathan was exploring the opportunity of bringing peace to America, I thought that would be the next uh, evolution of my uh, growth in the investigative interviewing field as well. And that's when I got in touch with him. And me being an American, talking about how this all came from American roots, mm-hmm. I thought it gave a little bit more credence to the fact that, well, you know, it's sort of like what Led Zeppelin did with the blues. <laughs> yeah. They, and it, that's exactly that's a great great yeah. analogy. They they took uh, the Southern Delta blues and they electrified it, and mm-hmm. amplified it, and then all of a sudden the British invasion, the music's coming back from England, and they're saying, and Americans are saying, "What is that music? What is that music?" And what it is is well, it was the blues. <laughs> well, even that, I mean, even the Rolling Stones, and it's uh, you've hit a chord here, no pun intended, because I'm a I'm a frustrated uh, sort of basement musician myself here, so. Um, even the Stones, uh, Eric Clapton, all of these people brought the blues back with a slightly different interpretation and feeling, uh, but they brought it back to the United States and it was accepted. Right. Uh, what's funny is, uh, you know, I've been down dealing with uh, across the border in, in Washington state. I've seen huge, huge improvements or changes, at least uh, with the police forces down there. I, I can't say anything bad about Seattle, for instance. It's funny that when I went down there and I got a chance to see what they were doing, they were doing what we call a teach to talk that was second to none. Really? Um, They were doing components of the peace interview. And when I delved into a little bit, it's because they had the same background as you. Uh, Some of them had actually been uh, had presentations by uh, Dr. Fisher. Uh, so they had seen the benefits already of the cognitive interview. And now to be introduced to the peace model, they were seeing how similar it was, mm-hmm. uh, that it was really the blues coming back. But they could see the roots of that. 
and they were terrific. I learned a lot off those folks. So is it going to spread down there? Well, I think it will. It's like anything else. It'll probably take a generation and it'll take word of mouth. Um, you have the Loveland police that are doing terrific things uh, out in Colorado. Anybody that's trying it is at least opening up their mind. And, and it, who knows, 20, 30 years from now, you might see something that might be a lot different than the piece that's used in the UK. But I think that's what has to happen in, in the US is what happened in Canada is take the good, make it your own, and just make sure that it is uh, it is a good product that follows the science. And it might not look identical, just like the blues coming over from England, mm -hmm. but it's still good blues. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that uh, you agree with me on that analogy. I, I told Jonathan that, you know, years, not years ago, a few years ago, and he thought it was kind of neat, you know, my analogy of how, you know, the the, the rock, uh, rock and roll from uh, the original blues uh, in America was then amplified and 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 electrified over there in England and then brought back and the Americans were saying, oh my God, what is that? What is that? I know. But anyway. Well, I, I got to tell you, I think I'm going to steal that from you instead of that new world old monkey uh, thing that I just threw at you. Well, that's, yeah, you, you're, uh, Bruce, I mean, it's uh, best practices here. You can, you can, you have that with my permission, sir. Oh, thank so, you. All right. So we're about that time in the interview when I ask my guests for their favorite stories and I hope you have one for me today. I, I do. It's, um, I mean, it's something that means a lot to me and it, it has made me who I am. It's not something that I necessarily like talking about or bringing back because it was very traumatic for me and it, and it did change my life. But I became an interviewer because of this. And I became interested in human memory and the effects of that because of this one incident that happened when I was very junior. And, and you'll be able to see uh, how, it, how it made me. In 1993, when I only had seven months service, uh, I was really a green rookie at that point. I got a call to the local hospital in our small little town in Alberta. And uh, I wasn't given a lot of information, uh, as is the case. Uh, in fact, we didn't have 911 back then in the rural areas. Uh, the hospital called to the phone line in the detachment and I answered it. That's that's how old I am. So I went to this call not knowing what was going on. And a 21-year-old jumped out of the emergency ward and pointed an AK-47 assault rifle at my face from about 15 feet away and yelled, get your hands up or I'll blow your effing head off. Uh, and that rocked my world. Um, yeah. Immediately, the very first thing, like I've had now 20 odd years to play over why I was not at my best in responding to this and why I didn't remember things as some other people might have or expected me to. And it has caused me to research and and and, and talk to people and try and come up with theories. Um, but if I go through that whole incident, I now can apply what I know, what I found out as to how I actually acted and what happened to me. And it, it all points towards the whole peace model and any free recall type of investigative interviewing, the best practices. I mean, the first thing that happened is I froze. I wasn't even able to talk. So I was uh, had put upon me what we would call uh, uh, emotional overload uh, and at the same time cognitive overload. Uh, so from that, I realized that what do you want to do at the front end of any interview? Make sure that the person you're talking to doesn't have cognitive or emotional overload. So you're going to build rapport with them. You're going to explain things to them, demystify the process. 
Well, you're going to see exactly where I'm going with this. That's the interview process so that you can bring that person to a a point where they have the best ability to recall what happens, which is our whole job as an interviewer. Well, after that, um, I have to say, I don't remember a lot of what happened at certain points. I was so overloaded. When I was interviewed afterwards, it had a huge impact on my development as an investigator and as an interviewer because... I had a corporal that pulled out a a sheath of papers and started going through uh, question, answer, question, answer, question, answer with me, as opposed to I'd like you to really focus, start at the beginning and tell me everything about this. So it was question, answer. It was to achieve his agenda of finding out exactly what he wanted to know. But it wasn't very friendly for my memory, for my recall. So I was asked questions like, what was his hair color? And the best I could come up with was sort of average, I don't know, a bit of sort of a brown color. And then I was asked, what color were his eyes? And I couldn't even answer that. And I remember getting a bit of a look from my corporal as if I must be the biggest moron in the world. I didn't, I was in there for a couple of hours with this guy and I didn't even know what his eye color was. What sort of a moron is this cop we hired? Mm-hmm. And I felt really horrible about that. But in reality, if I had known or if my corporal had known about human memory back then, he would have known that that actually is an appropriate answer for me. Right. Because I, I wasn't worried about his eye color or anything else. What was I focused on? One thing, survival. And that threat to my survival was one thing, that gun. Right. Oh, I could tell you everything about the gun, but I couldn't tell you about any of the other peripheral details. Uh, so it made me think, my God, I as a victim of a traumatic experience will now be interviewing other victims of traumatic experiences. I better learn what that person should present as not how I think I would have presented myself in that situation that they're in. So that's what got me going on how to actually interview people properly in an empathetic, in a scientific manner, which is really based on memory and and what we know from the scholars right now. Okay. So um, that, that had a huge impact on me. Um, and even to this day, uh, it always gives me guidance on how I should behave when I'm in the room. Uh, Bruce, we never talked about this before. So, uh, mm-hmm. and I don't know how it ended. And I think my listeners would, would like to know too. Are, are you able to share with us how that situation resolved itself? I know you're still with us. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's the first part is I did live. Um, this isn't a seance. So uh, <laughs> that, that came about okay. What what happened was um, it's it's almost classic de-escalation, but by luck, because I didn't have any training in it. So uh, again, I can look back and go, wow, lucky. I'm blessed. I shut up then and didn't talk. Um, it was a lot of listening. It was uh, you know how they always say uh, on an airline, if if something happens, if the cabin pressure drops, put on your mask first before you try to help somebody else with theirs. Yeah. Um, I was completely useless to everybody, including myself, uh, when I was overloaded uh, emotionally and cognitively. I could have done all of the breathing exercise techniques I now know about. It would not have calmed me down, probably. It was the... Uh, it was a very scary thing for me afterwards when I realized I had accepted the fact I was going to die that night. Mm. And uh, it actually calmed me down because when you have accepted death, which for many of us would be your biggest fear, nothing else scares you anymore. So you, it's kind of counterproductive or counterintuitive. I, I actually was able to have the clarity I never, ever had after that. 
So I was able to listen and truly listen better than I have ever listened and observe this young fellow, Michael. And I noticed that he went from wanting to go out in a ball of flames and kill everybody and very hostile and aggressive to over the couple of hours, he was starting to actually look like he might want to live. And he was showing that he wasn't exhibiting anger as much towards me and the other hostages. And I, I was able to actually ask him uh, what happened, why we're all there. And he told me uh, about his uh, wife messing around on him and then a few problems that also then were compounding the situation and that he was drunk. And it just went to hell in a handbag for him. And I realized I'm dealing with a human being here. Uh, not at the time, I was just scared, but afterwards I realized this is a young fellow that was 21 years of age that had the whole ugly world thrust upon him, and he got drunk and handled it very badly. And yes, he could have killed us, but I was able to still, and this was to carry on into my career, realize that most of the people I would actually end up talking to that had done horrible crimes actually were good people. Mm. Uh, I know that sounds like it's very weird. Um some police officers might go, no, how can you say that? Um, but I think anybody that's done a lot of service or worked with people can realize we all make mistakes. Some of them are drastic. Doesn't mean that it shouldn't receive some sort of, I guess, uh, punishment or, or action afterwards. There will be a, a consequences and accountability, but they're still human. I was able to tap into that with him in that moment of clarity I had. And when he told me what happened, I realized what his agenda was. Now, you and I both know that's a big term in interviewing yep. because now I was able to listen to him and figure out how I could actually impose my agenda later. To cut to the chase, John, I, uh, I listened to him. I learned out what the, what the problem was. I then uh, suggested that we work together so we could all live that night. Mm -hmm. And we finally decided that I was going to walk out with him with the guns on me and get him to his vehicle, that I wasn't going to go in his vehicle with him, but he would have freedom to go home. And over the radio, I was able to have uh, the RCMP members promise him that was the best way to deal with this. He finally accepted that. And then when he got home afterwards, he uh, I had given him my business business card. Uh, it's weird. Again, the clarity allowed me to do things I I never would have thought of otherwise. I asked him if he was going to kill himself, and he said he wasn't sure. When he got home, he actually called the detachment, and they got me to race back. And again, to cut to the chase, it ended up with me having him come out and surrender to me from his house, uh, and there was no bloodshed. So uh, it all worked out very well. But every single thing that I just talked about there that worked, even though I didn't know back then why or how it worked, it is now part of what I see as conversation management and motivation interviewing. It's all the same thing. De-escalation. We've got to stop looking at it as silos. It is all communication skills and, and showing empathy. And if we can do that with even, well, with the majority of people, uh, no matter what they've done, there's more of a chance that they will be willing to choose to talk to us however they want to say it. And I'll take that agenda. Yeah. So to your point, I can't help but see all the uh, body cam footage that's coming out of uh, police officer-involved shootings where the situation is escalating and escalating and escalating until the time the gun is fired or, or fired multiple times. Yeah. And the, and the uh, person is shot and, and sometimes killed, mm -hmm. uh, no gun on them. And you're, and you're saying, what, what, why is that the situation? Yeah. But you could see the ramp up in emotions. You can see the person, uh, the, the, the officer, uh, going, from zero to 60. And, and it's not necessarily because of 
having a mean streak or wanting to shoot the person. It's that it's that their body is going through the same sort of limbic override yeah. of the cognitive portions of the brain to the to the survival portions of the brain. Yeah. And do I do I understand that right? Oh, you absolutely do. And and you know, it's my situation worked out well where I had the time, um, you know, to to actually think and talk and respond in a way that that led to the success or helped it lead to a successful outcome. Unfortunately, the other situations that happen on this happen on the street, those poor officers, I have to say, they're going in there, they don't have the time, like time will always be on your side. But unfortunately, it's not always given to you. Mm -hmm. And uh, boy, to have to make I, I don't want to even compare this, obviously, and I don't think you're alluding to that. Either, no, I'm not to the situation that when it happens quickly out there, those poor folks have to make a decision. And I feel for them because, uh, you know, I was blessed with having some time to make my decision. I, I really feel for anybody that that just has it thrust upon them. So yeah, I, I, I waffle back and forth on that because I see enough of this tape. Yeah. And I, I wonder how much of it is, you know, the, the officer being in fear of their life mm -hmm. versus, you know, saying, oh, uh, this is my opportunity to say that I'm in fear of my life. Yeah. You know, it, it's, uh, it's a fine line and you have to ask yourself what's really going on there. And do I get inside the head of the officer? Well, no, I don't. Well, there um, is a way. And that's, you know, it's a very important point that, that you've just sort of triggered with me here is the proper use of investigative interviewing techniques is that officer has to be interviewed by somebody that is skilled in interviewing in the same way as anybody else and to not presume that they have done anything wrong. Because by law, in most civilized countries, the police are actually it, it encouraged is a strong word, but they are obliged to use that level of force mm. until proven otherwise. It is their job. So uh, to go in in an unbiased manner requires extremely good interview skills and self-awareness. And a proper investigative interview has to be conducted so that officer has the opportunity to articulate it. And in the same way we would with anybody else, you're going to assess, well, does that match checkable facts? Mm. And if it does, then, then they are a reliable person. And if it doesn't match the checkable facts, then uh, all the interviewer has done is, is a proper investigative interview and, uh, and possibly it should be viewed differently uh, maybe an alternate hypothesis job. So it all, it all comes down again to that part of the investigation that really wraps a bow around everything, and that's the investigative interviewing again. Right. No, I appreciate that, Bruce, and I'm, I'm glad that we had a little extra talk about it, about other circumstances yeah. after after your, uh, you know, your de your able your ability to de-escalate the, uh, the hostage situation of which you were one of the hostages. So uh, I just wanted to get a little bit more clarification on that with some other circumstances that, you know, maybe our listeners can wrap their heads around. So this, it's at that time, you know, we've, we've talked for over an hour, sir. Wow. And, uh, yes, you I know, you know me to be so quiet and timid. <laughs> I know. And I had a, it was like pulling teeth. I got to, I got to admit, uh, but anyway, uh, so, Bruce, how can people get in touch well, with you? Well, um, the easiest way is by phone or texting, and uh, it would be 604-908-0120. Uh, or um, uh, LinkedIn is probably one of the best ways to get a hold of me. It's Bruce Pickpain, and the last name is P-I-T-T -T hyphen P-A-Y-N-E. Um, mm -hmm. And that should have my Gmail address and everything else on that if anybody wants to contact me. 
That's great. Now, for the last couple of years since your retirement, mm-hmm. you're now in, in business for yourself up there in uh, the great North American yeah. portion of uh, Vancouver. So tell us what you're doing up here these days. Oh, well, I'm, I'm again, very blessed to have, have a skill after leaving the police, uh, at least recognize I have a skill. I got to tell you, I think most police officers have a skill and it's their organization, their critical thinking, their their ability to communicate well. But I think I was lucky that I recognized that early and and, and had some really good training and interviewing. So what I'm doing now is acting as a consultant for for government, uh, police, non-government agencies as well. Uh, Right now, HR type interviewing is becoming very big with the Me Too movement, and it should be. And uh, also, uh, when asked, uh, designing and teaching courses that are either the peace model or at least based on the peace model. Model, uh, and sort of uh, adapted to Canadian uh, ethics and legal standards. So that's what I'm doing full time. Uh, but at the same time, trying to stay slow enough uh, that I can consider it uh, semi-retired, at least, and not another full time job. And be able to play your music in the basement. Absolutely. To the show right. neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bruce. Well, uh, I'm going to turn off the tape right now, but let's just hang on for a little bit. Okay, awesome, John. Thanks. Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Please leave any comments on the website, www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Our guest next week is certified genealogist Claire Ammon. Claire's introduction to genealogy began when she started working for my missing air company in 2008. This job fostered her deep-seated passion for history, an interest which began in high school and which grew through doing a degree in American Studies at the University of Manchester in the UK and a year-long museum internship in Tempe, Arizona. Claire became a board-certified genealogist in February of 2012. She continues to utilize her forensic genealogy skills through her work on U.S. Army military repatriation cases and missing air projects, and she regularly works on family history projects. She enjoys the challenge that research brings and is excited to help others with their genealogy mysteries. It's my pleasure to introduce to you next week, Claire Ammon. This episode is brought to you by my own crime thriller with a mystery twist, Odessa on the Delaware. A Russian gang enforcer is on a murderous rampage to take over the entire Philadelphia mob scene. A homeless vet doesn't know that he has the proof or that he's next on the list. The stakes are high for this deadly cat-and-mouse game set on the bleak Philly waterfront of years gone by. FBI agent Marsha O'Shea, a gunslinger from the Miami cartel days, is back in her hometown, quietly finishing out her career, but now is drawn into this case with a secret pushing her doggedly to follow the clues, only to uncover a greater secret that may get her killed in the final showdown. You can buy Odessa from your favorite online retailer. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear other great detective stories, please go to johnhoda.com and click on the podcast page. There you will find the backlist. Now, you're probably asking, John, what about your own stories? Do you have any? Sure enough, I do. And they're available for you free with your email subscription to the podcast as a download right to your inbox. I have eight short stories and eight vignettes from my book titled Plug Shots, My Favorite Detective Stories. Now, here is my ask. If you were informed, inspired, and entertained, 
by the stories today. Don't be bashful. Please take a moment to share this podcast with your friends, then leave a review on your favorite podcatcher. If you'd like to leave a comment, you can do so on the website at www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Thank you so much and have a great day.